But as a reminder, we do have a, uh, a theme for this year, for 2020, and that is that we want to seek a clear vision, right? Having a clear vision of hope for 2020. And I just, every once in a while, want to remind you of that, because all that we do, even our sermon series and our ministries and our initiatives for this year in particular, are focused on that and bringing a clearer vision, bringing some clarity to who we are as a church and what we do and how we function. And that means, you know, all of our looking, uh, you know, reviewing all of our ministries and how we serve God and what we do in the community and, you know, our youth ministry that we're beginning is a part of that, bringing clarity to who we are and what we should be doing as a church, right? Um, I would encourage you as well, if you are interested more about what does God say about the nature and purpose of the church, read the book of Ephesians. It was the first book of the Bible... Um, that I preached through when I got here five years ago. Next month it'll be five years that I've been here, and that was the first book that we went through was Ephesians. Why? Because I needed to remind myself and wanted all of us to do that as well about who we are as a church and what we are called to do. Uh, so that, that would be great, and especially Ephesians 1. Uh, that would be a good one to, to write down and, and to, to read through once in a while, to be reminded of all that God has given you and, and who you are in Him. And so that is our theme for this year. A clear vision of hope for 2020. So we always want to have that clarity of vision, right? Don't you, don't you agree that in some way you're always desiring to have clarity in your life? Isn't it so easy to let your life just kind of get muddled and, and, and muddied, right? The water's getting muddied and you feel like you need to see through that. Thank you for the amen in the front row. Yes, we know that. And so we're always looking for clarity. But where do we find clarity of life? In the very word of God. And so in just a moment, we're going to open that up. But our series has been in uh, 1 John. So we are in 1 John 2, and our passage for today is verses 15 to 24. And as always, there's a lot that's packed in, uh, but of course, there's a couple things we'll highlight and, and focus on and kind of land on for our remaining time together. But we call this series Walking in the Light, because this is something that John makes a big deal of and is a... In, in this letter, remember that John the Apostle who wrote 1 John, it's the same John who wrote 2 John and 3 John, he wrote the Gospel of John, and he also wrote Revelation. So he's rather prolific, and he, uh, as we know from the, from the Bible records and elsewhere, that he is probably the best friend of Jesus. And so he's really a, a great one, the perfect one, to give us an account of who Jesus is, what he did, and then what we're supposed to be carrying on as the mission after him. Do you remember the Great Commission when Jesus was leaving to go back to the Father and he, he called all the disciples to go out among all the nations and what? Make disciples, right, of all the nations? Baptizing them, teaching them. That's for us too because we follow in that line of the ancient church where we are on that same mission from God that we would do that. So we, that's why we say that we walk or pursue discipleship to be a follower a learner and a follower of Jesus, because that's is what he has called us to do. And so in 1 John, he talks a lot about this idea of walking in the light, right? So John loves to use contrasts, and I think that's important. Um, so as we even read today, you'll notice that he does that today. But in every message you're going to see, there's this aspect of John likes to compare things, right? He likes to compare like light in dark or death and life, he likes to, you know, uh, talk about captivity and freedom. And today is no different. So keep that in mind as well. It kind of helps us to keep things simple and give us some clarity as we move forward in His Word. But today, in the very first verse, and in just a, in just a minute or two, I'll read the passage. But in First John two verse fifteen, he says these words, and this is really what we're going to land on because the rest of the passage is him bringing clarity to it. He says, do not love the world. Now that's a, a, a phrase that you've probably read a lot in Scripture. But maybe you've never thought through, what does it mean, first of all, to love? And what does this, world, this word world mean? We have to define terms, don't you? Ever have a conversation with somebody, and you're talking for like five, ten minutes, and you realize, wait, what are we talking about? And you realize you're on different pages, maybe on a different subject, because you didn't define the terms. They're like, wait, what are we actually talking about here? And so I think in order for us to understand what John is trying to encourage us to, we have to first look at what does he mean by love? What does it mean to love? And he says, the world. And he says, do not love the world. So he's instructing us to not do something, to avoid something. 
But there always has to be something to replace it with, right? And so we will end on a, a word of, of, of uh, hope today. And that's always one of my goals, that we would leave being hopeful, but yet we do not skip over the hard passages of Scripture. And so this can be a hard one to hear because it can be hard-hitting for all of us. Because John tells the believers, remember he's writing this to believers, and so this is not sort of a checklist of like, make sure you're saved. He's saying these are believers, and he's confident of their faith, and even says it in our, parad- in our passage today. But he's writing to believers to say, check your fellowship with God. Not your secure position and relationship, but your fellowship. Are you enjoying your relationship with God? Are you enjoying that fellowship that is given? Are you walking in the light and avoiding the darkness? Because you're a believer. You shouldn't be walking in darkness. And today he starts to give some more uh, examples and unpack it. And basically what he says to us today is, why do you keep being drawn into sin? What is it about sin that is attracting you? And he says, because the world is all about sin. And so we're going to define those terms. But also, first, I think we have to start with this idea of love because he says, do not love the world or anything in it. And then he goes on to to describe it a little bit more. But what does it mean to love? I mean, Friday was a big day in our lives, wasn't it? Remember what Friday was? It was Valentine's Day, right? Some of us celebrate, some of us don't, and it all looks different. I remember as a kid, I remember as a kid that, I don't know if they allow you to do this anymore in the public school, but we were able to bring those little candy hearts messages and you could package them up and give it you know and how excited that was you know you could give it to your friends and everybody and i remember the teacher said it can't be just to the girls the girls gonna be the guys got to be for everybody but it was this idea of like you were kind of showing love or appreciation you know and it had those little sayings on it and so yeah and so valentine's day is kind of one of those things and and we know in our society we we kind of like you know hype it up and because there's a lot of money involved right a lot of cards and gifts and all that. And I, I read recently that um, it's almost 80% of the cards that are purchased on Valentine's Day are bought by women. Isn't that interesting? Maybe some of the ladies are saying, yeah, that sounds about right, you know. But how did Valentine's Day get started? You know, um, it's interesting because historians just aren't sure exactly how it got started. There's a couple of different stories. But back in church history, there was a few... Uh, church leaders, and, and remember, before the 1500s, before the Reformation, there was one church, the, the Holy Roman Catholic Church, that was the only church that existed until the time of Martin Luther in the 1500s, right? But early back in the in the third century, there was um, a few uh, uh, leaders in the church at that time uh, that were named Valentine, right? And um, the, the story goes that one in particular... Um, he, he disobeyed the leader. There was an emperor, Claudius, his name was. And here's what happened with Claudius. The emperor Claudius, uh, of the, uh, he was a Roman emperor at the time, he didn't like his soldiers falling in love and being married. Because he thought the soldiers would be better soldiers if they were not in love or attached to a woman at all. And so he said it was forbidden to enter into marriage for all of his soldiers. And so this guy, Valentine, he didn't like that very much. And so he went against the emperor and he secretly married, performed marriage ceremonies for the soldiers who were in love and wanted to be married. And so what happened to Valentine? He got thrown into prison because the emperor Claudius found out what happened. But while he was in prison, the story goes, he fell in love with his jailer's daughter. And when he wrote her a note, he signed it, love your Valentine. See, that's one of the ideas about where we got this from. But the idea of love, right, that we are to love each other and and even we say we are to love God, what does it actually mean? What does it mean to love? Well, I think it's important that we get some context because often we just equate it with emotions. Well, I don't feel like I love this person or whatever, but love is much more than just an emotion. There has to be an action that goes with it, doesn't there? I mean, love really is an action word when you love somebody. It's not just an inner emotional feeling, but it's something that we do. It is an action word for sure. And I mean, Valentine fell in love with the jailer's daughter, and so he wrote a note, even something simple like that. But what does it really mean to love? We think of words like this, church. To love means to have devotion, like devote yourself fully to someone or to something. 
It means to show your affections, all that you have, yes, those emotions, that you are, you are funneling them and gearing them towards one particular person or thing. How about attention? You're giving all of your attention to somebody or to something. That is a part of what it means to love. It means giving your time and your energy, your loyalty, your adoration. You get the picture of what love means? It means that you are putting all of your focus and attention on that one thing or person. All that you have, your loyalty, your yes, your emotions, your devotion, your energy, your time, but really what it is is you are giving yourself away. You see that? As as you give all those things to somebody, in essence what you're doing is you're giving yourself away. If you've ever fallen in love, you realize what you did or what you did at some point is you gave your heart to somebody. But that can be a scary thing to do, isn't it? To give your heart to somebody. Because when you do, you want that person to cherish your heart, right? And to appreciate it and to respect it. Well, church, when John says, do not love the world, think about what he's saying. He's saying, church, please, to believers, he's saying, you no longer walk in darkness, you walk in light, the light of God, the one that you have committed your love to. Give him your devotion. Give him your time and your attention. Give him your loyalty. Why are you giving it to someone else or to something else? He says, do not love the world. That's a very strong statement. He says, he doesn't say, "Mm, don't like the world. He doesn't say, don't appreciate the world. He says, don't love the world. Don't give your time and attention to the world first. He says, in essence, don't give yourself away to the world. And then the rest of the passage, he kind of unpacks why that is. So a little bit about love, right? It means to give your time and energy, your devotion, and all that wrapped up saying, you are giving your heart away. To something or to someone else. But yet John is reminding us as believers, he said, you already did that. You gave your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now what are you doing with all of your energy and your time? He says, why? Why would you go back when Jesus is so worth loving and giving your heart to him? And so then, of course, uh, just sort of context, we have to understand what he means by um, what he means by the world, right? What does he mean when he says, do not love the world? We have a little bit of an idea of of that that definition of love, giving ourselves, giving our heart away. But what about the world? So let me read our passage, and then we're going to try to define what John means by the world, because it's a word we use a lot, right? The world gets me down, or being out in the world, or, you you know, the world is against me, whatever it is. What do we mean by the world? We mean like the planet? The earth? Now, what do we mean by that? So let me read the passage, church, and then we're going to uh, define world and see what it is that John is trying to really encourage us to do and how do we then replace that misplaced love with a true love for God. So this is First John 2, 15 to 24. Okay? He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. See, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they wouldn't have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Now I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, 
then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now you read that, it can be a little confusing, right? Like I said, John loves the contrast and he makes these connections. If you're abiding, you're in the Father. If you're not abiding, you're not in the Father. If you have the truth in you, then you're not a liar. But if you're, you're a liar, if you deny the truth, see that? The back and forth, I think he's trying to make it easier for us. And sometimes we know we want to make a point, we keep repeating ourselves over and over. I get confused with that a lot. Uh, and, and I get confused and I get um, uh, people say that I do that a lot. Not my wife and not my children, of course. But sometimes we have to. You have to repeat yourself, but you say it in different ways to try to make the point, right? And I think that's what John is doing. So he goes back and forth and he, he's saying, you know, hey, you've been anointed by the Holy One. He says, you have the knowledge. I'm not writing because you don't have the knowledge. You do have the knowledge. And I love that part. It's good. He's giving us that picture. He's saying, I am writing to believers here. You have already believed in the Lord Jesus for salvation. They say, see, you're a new person now. You're in a different relationship and you should be walking in the light, not in the darkness anymore. But he says, I'm writing this because you do have the knowledge and you should know better because you have access to the truth. And he says, the liars are the ones who deny that Jesus is the Christ. That's how he defines the Antichrist. He says, you've heard there's going to be the Antichrist that comes in the future. You read in Revelation about him. But what he's saying is all the false teachers, the false prophets of his time, they are like Antichrist. They're like the precursor, the precursors to the one Antichrist that's coming in the end, who will do the same things. You see that? Who will come and be a deceiver, who will try to uh, deceive you to believing a lie to make you think it's the truth. And, and I do believe that's one of the, the things that John is calling us to do most of all is not believe the lies of the enemy. Because the enemy will try to get you to believe something that's not true about yourself. And about who you are as a child of God, about the, uh, as a son or, or daughter of the living God. And so he's saying, please don't do that. Don't replace the truth that you already know with the lies of the world. And so again, what does he mean by the world? So there's really two ways that the word world is used in the New Testament. John 3.16, what does it say? For God so loved the world. So that's a good thing, right? In that context, he's talking about the people. Saying God so loved the world, meaning his creation, what he created, specifically the people. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would never die or perish but have everlasting life. And so in that context, the world is people, and that's a positive, and that's good. But most of the time, when you see the word world used, especially we always read in context, right? The way John is using it is he's talking about the corrupt world system and philosophy of the enemy. Because here's the key to understanding this passage. That John is reminding us, church, that we do have an enemy. His name is the devil or Satan, and he is real. You don't often hear people talking about him anymore, but it's probably just the way that he likes it. But see, he's saying we have an enemy, and all throughout Scripture, he is called, really, the God of this world. You remember when we went through our series on theology, exploring the essential theology through the, the greatest story ever told, remember? And we looked at angels and demons, and we saw that, that Satan, as a person, he has names that are given to him. And I think it's important we remember those things, right? That, that he is, uh, just want to, I won't even read the passages, but he is called the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. Uh, he is called prince of this world, John 14. Prince and power of the air, Ephesians 2. God of this world, small g, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And ruler of this world, John 12. See, John in his gospel calls Satan the ruler of this world. But we need to remember that, church. Yeah, we don't want to focus on that, but we cannot forget. This is so important. We cannot forget that we do have an enemy. That there is such thing as spiritual warfare, meaning there is an enemy of God who is trying to usurp all of the worship for himself, or at least to take it away from God. Right? And so we are, that's why we're called to worship God, to bring our focus and attention to God, and that is the thing that Satan, our enemy, hates most. Because if he is an enemy of God, then he should be an enemy of us, amen? And I think that's what John is trying to tell us. And so when he uses the word world, he means the world system, the moral system, the the humanistic system that is at odds with God. The philosophy 
the, the, the morality, the value system of this world is in opposition to God. And if you remember nothing else, remember this, and I'll repeat it a couple times. How do we determine what is of this world? When he says, do not love the world or anything in it, how do you determine it? Well, you go back to see what the truth is. You start with the word of God. You've heard it said, like, how how do people uh, in in the government, how do they decide and try to, to find counterfeit money? They don't study the counterfeit. They study the real money. So when they see the counterfeit, they know that it's not real. So you study the real thing. So we study the Word of God so that we grow in our discernment and wisdom so that as the world, the system of our enemy, all the values that the world puts up as important, the philosophies, all those things that are based on humans and not God, based on the creation and not the Creator, then we will recognize those and say, wait, that's not for me. Because I'm not truly made for that. Yet I'm made to be in this world, but not to be of it, as we say. Right? Not to partake of it. And there can be fine lines there, right? Fine lines there about what the world has to offer. And some things, maybe we say they're benign or innocuous, and we say that's fine, but it's it can be a slippery slope. And so I'm not going to preach to you and, and say, here's things that you shouldn't do. Oh, you can't watch TV. You can't go on the Internet, do these things. Because what happens is, as a, a child of God, you're supposed to be growing in your knowledge, your faith and trust, growing, starting from the Word of God as your foundation, so you can recognize those things that are good for you, those things that are approved and good and from God, and those things that are not. Because again, remember, John is a man of contrasts. And he makes it clear that the world system and God's system, the world's values and God's values, are at opposition with one another. And we don't often look at that. We say, ah, we can combine them and it all works good. And, but what John doesn't give us that option at all. He says all that the world has to offer is in opposition to God. So the more that you know the Word of God and who He is and what He desires from His people the more you'll be able to recognize and determine those things that are meant to allure you or to ensnare you, right? And so uh, we remember 2 Corinthians 4.4. It says, in their case, talking about people who have not followed God, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see that? Paul makes it so clear. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He's saying that Satan, our enemy, is the God of this world. Because you remember, I mentioned before, all the way back in, in the garden of Adam and, uh, with Adam and Eve, that Satan came in and he deceived. He allured Adam and Eve in. And they fell for that. Right? And they were lured in and they sinned. And so in that moment, in that sinning, what happened was Satan, God's enemy took dominion away from Adam and Eve. God said they're supposed to have dominion over the world. He took that from him. So until Christ returns to set up his kingdom on earth and rule and reign as the king having dominion, until that happens, we know that Satan has rule over this world. Now, remember this, church. We also know that God is always sovereign. Okay, So no matter what, God is sovereign. He is allowing it because of his sovereignty. He knows what he's doing. But let's not forget that when we try to define the world, we say that, yes, Satan has a level of dominion and power over this world. And so all those things that we see are opposed to God's word, that's coming from him. Do you see what John is doing, giving us those contrasts? You have God and you have Satan. You have light and you have dark. You have the world system and you have God's system. Now, it can be difficult for us, church, to be black and white like that, to be so cut and dry. And I think John is trying to, he's not trying to get us to be legalistic or so dogmatic. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to encourage us and say, look, you are children of light, children of truth. You have the truth. Please do not fall for the lies of the enemy because he will be deceitful. You know, the enemy, Satan, he he doesn't often, if ever, come across just so blatant where we recognize it and we say, no way, right? He is a deceiver. He is a deceiver. And so John goes on to how to describe it. And he says, when he says, okay, don't, 
He says, do not love the world or anything of it. And then he says, for all that is in the world, and then he wraps it up into three things. You ever hear this? Now, I memorize it a different way, but we said something here. He says, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Some of you maybe memorize it as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If you take those three things, basically John is saying every sin that can ensnare you, everything that we can do that is opposite of what God wants can fall into those three categories. Right? The lust of the flesh means anything fleshly because we are... um, you know, we are born sinful, and so in our flesh, it's not just physical bodies, it's mainly what he means, but anything there that is lustful, meaning that brings us away from God towards what is evil or bad or against God, he's saying the lust of the flesh, it is those fleshly desires that then grab a hold of us. The lust of the flesh. It's like any sinful desire that comes because of our fall in human nature. It's a desire born of our corrupt mind and heart. Now, as believers, church, we know that we have been given the power to say no to sin. All right? Through the Holy Spirit. We know we will give in because we're not yet perfect. But see, the goal is, as it's always said, is not we know we won't become sinless in this life, but the goal is to sin less. Right? Is to give in to those temptations Less. So he says, the lust of the flesh, anything of the flesh that's not of God, anything that is not of our spirit, which is made new and connected with God, anything of the flesh. He says, that is um, of the world. How about the lust of the eyes? So you take the sin of the flesh and you add to it anything maybe that we don't have or can't, any desires that we cannot fulfill of our flesh. How about the things that we wish we had? The things that we can see with our eyes. There is a lot that we can see with our eyes, isn't there? I mean, especially today. I mean, every generation, but especially today. So yes, we have to be careful. It can sound trite, but I think it's so profound. Maybe that's why we've said it so much. But we do have to be careful what we do with our eyes. What we look at. What we give our time and attention to. It's all wrapped up in John saying, do not love the world. It's what you do with your eyes. It's been said this way. Maybe you agree or you don't. It's been said this way. You can't avoid the first look. It's the second look that gets you. But do you see what I mean? There's an idea of like that we're in this world around us. We notice things. But once you start bringing your focus and attention intentionally to something that is not of God, that's what he's talking about. That's the lust of the flesh. That's the lust of the eyes. It's longing for something you don't have that you shouldn't want anyway. It's what are you doing with your eyes? It's a sinful desire that is triggered by what we see and what we long for. But then he says, and then there's the pride of life. And actually those two things and everything else stems from pride. It stems from pride. The original sin. It's our basest of all sins. And everything grows and germinates from that. It is pride. How do you define pride? Well, here he's talking about arrogance and boasting the pride of life, saying... Yeah, yes, I have God, but I'm kind of, you know, I can do things on my own. Thinking more of yourself than you really are. Like, yeah, I got this. I can control this. This is all me. I got this. It's, it's a boasting and arrogance from a false sense of control and ownership. Forgetting that Christ paid the price for us. And in receiving that free gift of salvation, we have said, I am yours now. But then acting and thinking as if, no, I'm still kind of my own. I'm in control. He says, that's pride. But that's really, again, that's our basis of sins where it all comes from. That we don't want to give up authority and control over anything to anyone else. That we want to be in control. That's why God says, really all he asks of us, church, is that we trust and obey. When you trust God and you obey him, you're giving up control and say, God, I can't do this on my own. I think I know what's good and right, but I want to trust you because you're God and I'm not. But that's the hardest thing for us to do in our sinful nature, church. And I know you know what I'm talking about, is to give up control. To give up authority and control to anyone or to anything. 
But sometimes we do that. We actually do. We voluntarily give control of our life to something or to someone that shouldn't even have it. When we, when we habitually give into a sin, we are giving up control to that sin. Now you might think, oh, I'm controlling it, and I got it. Don't worry, God, I can take care of this. But has not that sin controlled you? You have given up control to it. See, but it all comes down to that pride of thinking that you have control and authority when that ultimately rests with your Creator, God. So every sin imaginable can be summed up in those three things. Whether it's envy, adultery, pride, lying, selfishness, everything comes from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Give you a simple example. Whoop, sorry. Adjusted my glasses and pushed the mic, sorry. Just wanted to get your attention. You're all awake, right? With me in a few minutes left. A simple example. How about hunger? It's okay to be hungry, right? And you're all saying, yes, we are hungry right now. You've got five minutes. Okay, I get it. Hunger, what does hunger do? Hunger leads us to eat food. Eating food is good, right? You know, we'll all be doing that in a few minutes. So hunger leads us to eat. And hunger, so hunger is good. It leads us to eat food. Food is good, right? And we get amen to that. No amen in the front row? Food is good, okay? But what happens when that hunger that leads us to eat food, and that's good, when it leads to lust for food, the Bible calls that gluttony. See, it moves from something that's good and God-given, and then it becomes gluttony because that's all you want. You want more and more and more and more. So it starts with something good and God-given. It happens, I mean, how many times does Paul talk, especially in Corinthians, about sexual immorality? God created our bodies, and between a husband and a wife, he said, this is good. God created that. But when it's outside of the marriage, and all those things we know about, right? See, that is lust of the flesh. He's saying, so it's something good and God-given, and then you just want more and more and more for the wrong and wrong reasons, and then it becomes lust. See, it's just like with food and with hunger. It's okay, but then when it gets out of control, when there's no discipline, when you're not keeping it within God's boundaries and God's margins that He sets up in His Word, then it becomes gluttony, which is a sin. James 4.4 kind of gives us the strongest word on this. You adulterous people, I told you it was strong. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It means you're an enemy. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, in the Bible, uh, it talks a lot about marriage. You know, the church is called the, the bride of Christ. Christ is the, the groom and we're the bride. And we are betrothed to Jesus now because he came and paid the price for us. You know, it's really cool. I'll share this briefly. But if you look back at the ancient Jewish uh, rituals for the, the marriage ceremony, it usually lasted about a week uh, at least. And what would happen at the beginning of that week? And, and listen, now I'm making this point. So what would happen at the beginning of that week is that the groom-to-be would go with his father. The father would take the son. They would go to the house of the bride-to-be with, with her father. And they, the son, right, the father would pay a price through the son, kind of like a dowry, but he would pay the price, and not to buy the bride, but to say, yes, this is, and that was part of their culture, this now means that you are free to join me in, in, in marriage. And then he would leave for a week, and there would be parties, and there would be stuff happening. At the end of the week, the son would return to claim his bride. Jesus came. The father brought the son to pay for us, the church, the bride. And he said, I'll be back. And when he comes back, he's going to come back to claim his bride. And we look forward to that day. But here, in a marriage ceremony, why does a, a, a bride walk in in all of white? What does it symbolize? Purity, right? Holiness, purity. The idea is that when you enter into an engagement, you are supposed to be pure towards one another until you get married. That's the idea. Because you have been betrothed, that's the old word, or you've made a commitment. So see, we are in that place, that time of betrothal now. You see that? Christ paid the price for us. He's coming back. Until He comes back, what's our responsibility? Be holy. He says, be holy because I am holy. Remain pure and white. Put off all those things 
that will bring a stain to this relationship and be holy because I am holy. He says, take those sins, those things that lead to darkness, the things of the world and put them aside and don't even play with them. For, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 says, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? See, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, Christ paid the price for us, that we now belong to him. And in that sense, I'm not saying it's easy, we do it perfectly, but in that sense, we have no business giving our heart to anyone or anything else. Because it doesn't belong to us anymore, church. It belongs to him. And then he says, the world is passing away. And in verse 17, let's not forget that, it's important. So why all these things? Why not to love the world? It's not even worth it. Because when we love God and the things of Him, those things last forever. But he says, those momentary uh, um, you know, um, pleasures that you give into, and whatever the sin is, the lust of the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life, he says, those things are fleeting. It might feel good at the time, but they have no lasting value other than drawing you away from God. So the Apostle John says, those, the world is passing away along with all those desires. Because one day those desires will have no effect on us. So he says, if you do the will of God, you abide forever. It doesn't, he's not promising eternal life by doing good things. He's saying, if you are following after God, then you're going to be following him all this life. Then you will be uh, obeying him. All right? You see, our, our minds are to be set on eternity and the things that last. God's word lasts forever. People last forever. Didn't Jesus say, what's the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor. So God lasts forever. People last forever. just depends on where they're going to be and spend eternity. Right? But he says the world is fleeting. The allure won't last because all of its desires are fleeting too. It's like, look, I'm not a fisherman. Some of you like to go fishing. I went a couple times with my son because he wanted to go. And uh, we went. But a little bit that I know is why do you call that thing that you put on the hook, right, on the fishing line? It's called a lure, isn't it? But what's it designed to do? Very simply, to lure in the fish. They, cre- I mean, there's a whole art to it, and it's created to attract the fish, right? It's supposed to look like something good for the fish. And the fish kind of swim around it like, I think that looks good. I think that's, yeah, I, I like that. It's good for me. I eat stuff like that. I think that's real. I think that's real. Maybe I should go for it. And the fisherman's just like, come on, you can do it. Just go for it, right? But it's created to be what? Shiny, to be attractive, to allure. That's why we call it allure. And then what happens when the fish says, I'm going to go for it. I think that's good for me. He gets hooked. Does that happen with us too? Right? And those things that the world has to offer, we're like, I love God and I love his word, but man, this, this is going to be good. I, I think I'm going to enjoy this. And we, we play with the fire and we get tempted and there's a lure and it's shiny and it looks good. Yeah, I think so. And then what happens? All of a sudden you're hooked and you didn't even, the fish says, what just happened? But we say the same thing, right? I'm going to say it. Um, this is uh, one of my favorite writers and preachers, Charles Spurgeon. And he says this, and he, he has a way of cutting right through. Listen what he says. He says, Charles Spurgeon says, If I had a brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if every day I spent time and hung out and fellowshiped with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? Surely I too then must be looked at as an accomplice in the crime. And he says, Well, sin killed Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love that? It's about having the perspective. And then finally, he talks in the passage about Antichrist. He says the end is near. It's been near for 2,000 years. But they knew because of all the false teaching, he said it's just going to get worse. And somebody said this morning, praise God, we're one day closer to the rapture. We are. But he says the end is near. But he says, look at all the false prophets, the antichrists, that are sort of the, 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 the ones that are um, uh, you know, coming before the one antichrist that we read about in Revelation during the tribulation, right? So all those false prophets, listen, false teachers, he says, beware of the things that you're listening to. Not just of the flesh and the eyes and the, and the pride, but he says the things you're listening to. Church, who do you listen to? Who do you let have influence in your life? Who is it that is influencing you? 
You know, um, it's kind of been said like a scuba diver. Do you ever go scuba diving? I mean, you go scuba diving, you're in the water, you're kind of living and existing under the water, uh, among those fish that are trying to get to the, the, the lure, right? And so you're, you know, I've never been, but it's like, it's, I'm sure it's so cool, right? You see a video of that. But it's like when you're scuba diving, you're in that world, you're under the water, you're surrounded by water, but you can't exist in that world without what? Air. And so you have an oxygen tank. So basically what you've done is you've taken that environment where you live and survive and brought it with you into that different world. And so it's kind of like us. See, we are made for heaven. And so we have to have the air that we breathe, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, God's very presence. We have to have that in order to survive in this environment. Amen? We have to do that. Or it's like this illustration, you know, who it is that we allow to influence us and and lead us so we're not following false prophets or the lie of the enemy. Many years ago, there was musicians in the city of London, and and, and they had noticed going day to day to, to, to practice and to play their music. They noticed that the laborers in a certain part of the city, the, the laborers who were out working like on the streets and the roads and the buildings, that they would hum, um, they would hum and whistle out of tune, just a little bit of out of tune. These are musicians who are like, these people are whistling every day. We pass them on the streets, these workers, and they're whistling a little bit out of tune. And so they kind of got together and they were talking, how could this be? How could they all be whistling a little out of tune? And one of them spoke up and said, you know why? It's because the bells at Westminster Abbey haven't been tuned or fixed in a while, and they're just a little bit out of tune. And so these workers every day are hearing the bells tolling and chiming, not even realizing that it's putting their whistling out of tune just a little bit. And so Donald Barnhouse says this, So we tend to copy the people with whom we associate. We borrow thoughts from the things that we read and watch and listen almost without knowing it. And he says, "God, Listen, God has given us His Word which is the absolute perfect pitch of life and living. If we learn to sing by it, we shall easily detect the false in all of the music of the world. Isn't that beautiful? So if we listen to what's in tune, we'll recognize something that's out of tune. When we study the real currency, we recognize when something is fake. When we study the Word of God, then we know what those things of the world are that John says to avoid. Amen? Amen. Speaking of music, um, we have a a couple of young ladies in our church that uh, are about to embark on a missions trip. And I wanted to invite them to come up. And so where is Mackenzie and Min? There they are. Come on up. Come on up on the stage. Yeah, I know. You have to come up, I told you. And they are going with their school, Calvary Academy. Come on up. And uh, they're going to the Dominican Republic. Anybody ever been there? And so the school, it's a local uh, Christian school. And many of you are uh, affiliated and you know familiar with it. And so they are going to the Dominican Republic. And I believe your class, uh, the graduating class, goes every year, right? And so they get to minister to the same people and sort of the same group. And it's great building that relationship. And so we as a church wanted to support them. And so we have financially supported them through the missions fund. We've, you know, over the years gathered money to help support just this thing. And so we are helping to support them and their team to go. But even more importantly than supporting them financially, which we we love to do, we want to support them with our prayers, right? We want to let them know that we'll be praying for them. And so I believe they leave next Sunday, right? And they will be incorporating music. That's how I was able to make that transition, see music. You're just like, what does he have to do with music? So part of their serving will be music. These two ladies are very musical. And their, um, their class is going to go and have many different ways to serve uh, and to be on mission for God, to let people know about the love of Jesus, to avoid the things of the world, right, and to love God. And part of the way they'll do that is through music. And so we just wanted to bring them up, going to give them an opportunity to share a few words uh, about what they're going to be doing and all that. And um, uh, and then what we're going to do is we'll close our time by praying over them, okay? And so did one of you want to share? Yeah. Yes, good. Okay, thank you. I figured it would be you and, and not McKenzie. Do you want to share too? Okay. Whatever you want. Go ahead. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Min, and I'm Kenzie's classmate, and we're class of 2020 going to DR next Sunday. Um 
How coincidental that our theme for the trip is love in action. And today I got to hear Pastor Keith um, preach about it. And my heart was touched by it too. Um, at the beginning of the month, when I first reached out to Pastor Keith to ask for the funding, um, our class was critically insufficient in the fund for the trip, and we may not be able to sustain the program. Um, but today here, uh, we receive our church blessings, and I feel that we could go down to DR with love and confident actions that we could be able to um, bring the gospel to the kids down there. And I truly appreciate your help. Amen. Amen. Did you want to share something? Good. Thank you very much. I wasn't going to do this, but um, just a little information about what we will be doing down here. As I said, uh, me and Min are going to be part of a team that leads worship. Um, The first night we're down there, like Sunday night, they have this um, get-together kind of, I don't know how to call it, but it's called Unidas Por El. And during that time that we are there, the whole like time leading up to it is their Mardi Gras and their worship of the devil and stuff. So the the community throws Unidos Por El as kind of um, another thing besides that. So we will be doing worship there along with a whole bunch of other sermons. And I believe it's live streamed across the country there. Um, Yeah, Kimmy knows because she has been there as well. Um, And then once my sisters, they also went with Calvary Academy and they told me about it. So I'm really excited to get to serve a whole bunch of Kids in schools, when we go down there, we visit a whole bunch. And the whole community down there with just the kids and then the churches that we go to. And then we also have an opportunity to go to this coffee house um, that we will be doing. We'll be the first class doing that. And we get to bring games and just a really good time of fellowship with the people down there. And as Min said, love in action is our theme. So leading up to this trip, our class is kind of iffy on the fundraising but this whole past month my class has gotten so much more into it and i'm really excited for what god has planned for us amen so church um want to pray for them so just right where you're seated if um can pray along with me and want to pray again god's favor and the holy spirit's leading as um he leads them into showing love through action so let's pray Father God, um, boy, how grateful we are for young lives, for these young women who have committed to go and to serve uh, to a different country where there's a different language and different culture. I mean, God, we know you're going to do amazing things in their life, but God, you're going to do amazing things through them. And we do, um, we anticipate that. We look forward to hearing those stories. But God, for this next week, as they finish their preparations, would you please, Lord, allow all the funds to come in? Would you give them that confidence that Min was talking about, that they can go and, and uh, take action to love and, and put that love into action, but they can do it with a confidence not in themselves, but in you, because you are the one who has provided. So God, please provide all the things they need, through, work through all the details, Lord, as they, they finish up this week of school and get ready to go. And God, we look forward to seeing how you will change these young women and uh, Give them that heart for mission. And Lord, please use them to speak truth, to speak love, to bring compassion, and of course, to bring uh, the name and the word of Jesus uh, to the people, especially the children that will need them. So go go before them, Holy Spirit, prepare the way, and bless them through it all, Lord God, because they want to do it for your glory, and they want to do it with humility to serve and to honor you. And so we pray over them, asking your provision and protection. Help us help us to be uh, mindful of praying for them each and every day, Lord, that they would know uh, with that, all that confidence that they have people back here that are praying for them and covering them in prayer. Let them know that, Father God. We just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So... What I'd like the ladies to do, if you can make your way back to the door, because we're going to close in a minute. And so uh, instead of greeting me, you see me all the time. On your way out, can you just greet them, shake their hand, give them a word of encouragement, throw them $100 bills, whatever you got to do, you know. Um, it's all good. I'm sure they'll receive that in Jesus' name, right? But, um, yeah, just, just give them a word of encouragement as you leave and let them know you'll be praying for them, okay? Um, and so if you would stand with me now, and before I close this in prayer... 
I want to I want to leave us with um, the word of God. This is a passage from Colossians 3. Let these be the words that you leave with. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is. Where he is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let us pray. Thank you for your words of encouragement, Father. May we rest on those and live in those this week. And God, may we take them and put them into practice. May we show love in action. Father God, just like Mackenzie and men will do in the Dominican Republic, may we do that here in our families, our places of business, in our communities, Lord. Oh, Father God, have mercy on us that we would put off that old self the things of the old self and all its practices and put on these things you told us to. God, help us to set our minds on things above, not on this earth, but things above where Christ is. And because of that, we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's go in his love and peace. Amen. Amen.